We're going to Acts 14, verse 21. Acts 14, verse 21. Today we wrap up the first missionary journey that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas embarked upon. What we're going to learn today is that the gospel is true, that we should believe it, and we should go and tell everyone, and then what? And then what? Well, and then churches are going to be born all around, full of believers in Jesus Christ as his spirit goes to work. So we'll see how churches were planted uh, on the trip back today in Acts 14, verse 21. I hope you know that the world needs more churches. The world needs more people to go out and to tell everyone that Jesus is alive, the gospel is true, they should believe it, then they should gather together and sing for joy because they've been saved. I've got a few slides here. Here's a map of this first missionary journey, just so you can see where they've been. Over on the right there, they started at Antioch. The blue line shows you their travels through Cyprus, which was where Barnabas was from, and then up through Perga, Pisidian Antioch, over to Iconium, and Lystra, and then Derby, and then the red line shows the journey back. So they go back, and they strengthen these churches, which is what our passage today is going to cover. And then they skip Cyprus and they head right back to Antioch to tell the church all that God had done. Now here's the next slide when it comes to church planting. I've got a quote here. Um, America needs more churches. This is from Clint Clifton, church planting expert. His book, Church Planting Thresholds. Here's what he says. Western culture is spitting Christianity out of its mouth. Every year in America, 4,000 evangelical churches begin. Only 2,600 of them will make it past five years. 7,000 churches close every year in America. So the church is decreasing by about 4,400 churches every year, while our population is growing by about 3 million people per year. You can see how the decline of Christianity in uh, civilization, but in particular in the United States, is resulting in less and less and less churches. And therefore, we have to plant new life-giving gospel churches so that people will be reached in their community. We have to go make disciples, and we have to plant churches. We work with several church planting organizations. We are a church plant, and so we are passionate about church planting. We went out and launched our church in 2009. We had dual affiliation with HBF and the CMBA, two networks. Now we are with GCC. And we're also looking into a local network called SEND. Here's some slides that show you the church planning networks we're a part of. The Great Commission Collective is our partnership with Pastor Alex and, and uh, Mark and Sarah. There are about 150 churches all over the world. This is our church planning network. And these churches came into existence because other churches sent people out. They were born, they were adopted, and we became a global family. We don't have very many of these churches nearby, though. So we're looking into a network called SEND. Here's the next picture. This network... Uh, is, is not just in Chicago, but 10,000 churches have been planted in SEN since 2010 globally. But here's the next picture for, uh, I think we have one more for this network. Do we have one more picture, or is that the last one? All right, I ran out of pictures. <laughs> so we have a global network called GCC, and then locally SEND is a family of about 200 churches that we are uh, plugging into. We need to be a part of church planting movements. We have to work with other churches to plant churches because what we will see today is local congregations were established when people were sent out. We've had the joy of participating in church plants in 
other countries, Kiev, Ukraine, Romania, also in other states, Arkansas, uh, also in other cities. We helped Joliet to launch a sister church. So how did the early church plant churches? How did they encourage us to go and make disciples? We are going to see today what happens when we go and tell the world when new churches come into existence. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will take the return trip with Paul and Barnabas. Let's pray. Jesus, you are building your church, and we see today that it began with proclamation to individuals, then those individuals started coming together, and entire churches were born, congregations singing for joy because they are redeemed. Show us how we also can go and tell the world that you're alive, how we can see people changed and transformed by the gospel, and how we can play a key role in planting churches in Chicago, uh, in the United States, and all around the world. Thank you, Lord, for this model in the book of Acts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we are in Acts 14, verse 21. Acts 14, verse 21. Uh, last week, Paul got stoned, and they dragged him outside of the city, and they thought he was dead. And God raised him up and saved him, and then he went right back into the city, kept preaching, and they moved on to the next town. We pick up the story in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. All right, this is our passage today. And you see back up there in verse 21, it says when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they preached the gospel. You could write this down in your notes. The first thing we see in the text is they preached the gospel and many were saved. They preached the gospel and many were saved. Now, this comes up again and again and again in the book of Acts. In the Bible, you see, what do they do? They preach the gospel. Now, it seems like it's repetitive, but man, they preached the gospel after Paul almost got killed. They preached the gospel. They went from city to city and got hunted down from people who traveled 100 miles to try and kill them. They preached the gospel. They didn't know the reaction they were going to get. They preached the gospel. Do you see how, in God's word, proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to the church being born and developed. We must preach the gospel. The word of God and the word uh, message or gospel comes up a bunch in the book of Acts. It's a big theme. Luke mentions it 36 times in the book of Acts, that the word of God or the message is being preached. 36 times this comes up. And then in the gospel of Luke, it comes up seven times. Really big deal that we have to understand we must preach the gospel. Not every church preaches the gospel. Sometimes they water it down. Sometimes they replace it. Sometimes, yeah, you know, we, people have heard all that before. They move on to new things and teach new interesting discoveries in each passage that maybe you haven't heard of before. Maybe they don't preach the gospel. We believe that today, all around the world, God is saving souls for eternity because they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they must hear it in order to be saved. It says in Romans 10, 15, we'll put it up on the screen. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written in Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is awesome. Paul knows that he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy as he goes and proclaims the gospel. They preached the gospel and many were saved. Okay, well, write this down. That begs the question, what is the gospel? What is it? Why do we preach it every week? What is the gospel? Well, the word means good news. It means good news. We get our word for evangelism from literally the Greek word, family of words, for gospel. If you looked at it in the Greek, you would actually recognize it because it looks like the word evangelism. Evangelism means sharing the good news. So gospel means good news. There's a great announcement, like a herald of the emperor would come and make a great announcement. That's what, what this means. One of the four pillars in our church from the very beginning has been sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. It's one of our four convictions that we will always find a way every Sunday to preach the gospel because people need to hear it. Heaven is excited when the good news is proclaimed. It says in Luke 2.10, little moment of Christmas here, right? Luke 2.10, we'll put it up on the screen. Behold, I bring you good news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The truth about Jesus Christ is heaven's news on earth. We proclaim it. We get to tell people this awesome news every week. This is a good heart check moment for Christians, especially Christians who've been in church for a long time. Sometimes Christians lose heart for the lost. They don't reach people with the good news. They don't tell them about Jesus. They don't invite people to church. And over time, their passion for souls grows cold. And then when they hear the gospel, it sounds like old news. It sounds like things they've heard before. And they don't look around the room and say, man, I hope somebody is getting saved right now. They lose a heart for the lost. They lose a heart for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let me just exhort you and invite you to never, ever lose a heart for the gospel. When you hear it, it should be the sweetest thing you've ever heard in your life. When you know other people are hearing it, it should drive you to prayer. Lord, right now get somebody with this news. It is heaven's news. It is the power of God for salvation that's going out. Don't let your ears get dull to the gospel. Does the gospel, when you hear it, still bring joy to your heart? When you look around and see people in your neighborhood or at your workplace or in your family who don't know Jesus, do you say, God, get them the gospel? Does your heart yearn for souls to be saved? Let's keep that fire hot. They didn't show up to the next town and say, all right, well, we've already covered that. We've already told people that. What's next in our routine? They kept proclaiming the truth and souls were saved forever. Okay, so we know what the gospel is now. Write this down. Who are disciples? Who are disciples? It says, and we're taking this right out of the text here, they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. All right, well, what's that? If you dig into the word there, it means one who listens and follows and imitates a teacher. Listens and follows and imitates a teacher. It's ultimately a relationship to a person that makes you a disciple. So walking around in the ancient world, there would have been many religious and, uh, and, and teachers of philosophy who would have had disciples. And 
I'm a disciple of Gamaliel. I'm a disciple of this person. I'm a disciple. And they would follow them. They would listen to them. They would imitate them. They would spread the teaching of that person. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, a lot of people assume they're a Christian, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that brings them joy. They don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that actually fits the description of being a disciple. They don't follow him. They don't listen to him. They don't learn from him. They don't imitate him. So in your own heart, ask yourself, are you truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? You know, I heard before it said that being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. You're not a Christian just because you're here. You're not a Christian just because you've been here a lot. You're not a Christian just because you've gone through religious ed. I went through religious ed. CCD. Anyone else go through CCD growing up? Yeah, went through it. Wrote my saint report, right? Said everything, raised my right hand. It was a total joke to me. It was a total joke to me. I know for some of you, maybe growing up, you took it seriously. You got, you got all those Awana badges, you know, growing up, and it worked. For me, it was just a big joke. I didn't know Jesus. I was not a disciple by the biblical measure. Now, a disciple here in the early church, they likely um, were raised in the synagogue, or they were raised in a Greek household, a Roman household, where they had many gods that they worshipped. So when they started following Jesus, listening to him, learning from him, and imitating him, they really stood out, all right? Like people hadn't heard before of Christmas in a lot of these other cities. So suddenly you show up to the family party, and, you know, you're not celebrating the God uh, Apollo anymore, you know? You're like, oh, I follow Jesus now. What? What is that? You became a disciple of Christ. So are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you left behind living your own way? Your own gods? They had to leave behind the law of Moses when it comes to the Jewish people and realize that Christ fulfilled all of that. They risked so much publicly to become disciples and it would start them down a lifetime of learning. So are you a disciple? Are you a follower, a listener, a learner, and an imitator of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do people know you know him? Or did you just check off some religious boxes growing up? Are you truly a disciple? Which leads to this question, are you saved by grace through faith in Jesus? That's how you become a disciple. Write that down. Are you saved by grace through faith in Jesus? It says they preach the gospel. What is that? It's the good news that Jesus saves. That is the gospel. The good news that Jesus saves. Then they made many disciples. Have you been saved by grace through faith in Jesus? This is the best news ever that you can be saved by grace through faith in jesus christ most people don't think they have to be saved they think they're pretty good they've done better than their sister you know that they've done better than a lot of people they know so they think that you know they'll be okay when people think of who's going to heaven one helpful illustration i heard was imagine a bookshelf and you know, if the bookshelf contains people, like the, the top is like saints, people who've given billions to charity, you know, and then Mother Teresa, and then a rung down from that is like really good people who've devoted their lives to serving others, and then below that is like good people. You know, like they, they didn't kill anybody, and they didn't steal anything, just, and then below that is like, eh, they're shady, and then at the very bottom is the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, the real scoundrels. 
people assume as long as they're at a high enough shelf that they'll go to heaven and they draw a line right below their feet and they say anybody below that goes to hell. That's wrong. You have to take that bookshelf and cut it straight down the middle. And there will be people in heaven who were the worst of the worst of the worst and who the world would have said were the best. And guess what? They got in by the grace of God. And there are going to be people on the other side who seem to be among the best of the best and they're not going to heaven because they're not saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how heaven is decided. Do you agree with the good news that your soul needs to be rescued by a holy God from hell forever? Do you agree with that, or do you think you're a pretty good person? I'll show you a video now of a guy who needed a rescue. Check it out. He was stuck on a ledge in a burning building over on the right there. Do you see him? They need to get him. This is the picture of somebody who needs a rescue. Now imagine the folly if he just sat there on the ledge and he's like, I'm good. Thanks, no thanks. I'm doing okay. He would have perished. Listen, the good news is this. Jesus will save your soul. Do you accept that? Do you accept that you need a Savior? And have you invited Jesus to be your Savior and Lord? Maybe today is the day you admit the truth, which is hard to face, that you aren't good enough to go to heaven and you never will be. You will be judged by a holy God. Your eternity is in his hands, and you need his son to save your soul forever. That is the gospel. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? They preached the gospel, and many were saved. We must preach the gospel. All right, write this down. Number two, they strengthened and encouraged the disciples. So they made disciples, and then they strengthened them and encouraged them. Reading on in verse 21, it says, They made many disciples, returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, how many? What does it say there? How many tribulations? Please don't let anyone tell you that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, all your dreams are going to come true. Please don't let anyone tell you that if you just had enough faith, all of your problems will go away. How many tribulations? Many. Many. They're telling them the truth. We must enter the kingdom of God. Let's pick this verse apart. They strengthened and encouraged the disciples. So these are followers of Christ being formed in church community together, and individually their relationship with Christ is growing. Throughout the book of Acts, we see how they did this. They taught, so there's a growth in knowledge, and they cared. There's a growth in love and mutual ministry to each other. So growth in knowledge, growth in community, is how churches and believers grow stronger. In general, if you're growing in knowledge and in conviction and in love, you are becoming a spiritually mature person. If you are not growing in knowledge, if you are not growing in conviction, if you are not growing in love, you're not growing up in the faith. You're staying weak. So this was a big risk for them to go back through these cities where they tried to kill him. And they did it to strengthen the church. That shows conviction. That shows love. They're modeling for this church what it means to grow stronger. 
So write this down. We must make strong disciples in loving community. We must make strong disciples in loving community. This is what they were doing. The word strengthen here in the Greek means to make stable, strong, or firm. Stable, strong, or firm. You can build with a lot of things, right? And if you make a house of cards, it's going to collapse with the gentlest breeze. But if you build a house out of cinder blocks, it's going to withstand the storm. Paul often used this idea of building, building up the building of Christ to say that he wanted to lay a firm foundation and grow something that was going to last. So he wants individual believers and communities to grow stronger in the faith. When it comes to being weak and being strong, typically people will think about physical strength to show the comparison. So here's a picture that shows you strong versus weak. Take a guess who's going to win that arm wrestling match. Anyone? Anyone? So the guy on the left either uh, went to the gym a whole lot or cheated by using performance-enhancing drugs. We don't know. But either way... He got there. The guy on the right, long way to go. Now, spiritually, you, when you start out, when you're a new believer, you're very weak. You're very vulnerable. And even as you grow older, you can go through seasons of weakness, right? You need to get stronger in the faith. That idea of physical strength gives us an image of what spiritual strength can look like over time. We have to grow stronger. Stronger in knowledge. When you go stronger in your knowledge, your ability to understand God's word, you grow stronger in the faith. That could be having your own personal devotion time where you read through the Bible, maybe in a year, you're growing stronger in knowledge. You also need to grow stronger in conviction. I believe this and you're not going to make me back down. I, I believe this with resolve, right? Uh, I'm going to follow this course even though it's hard because this is what's right. That's conviction. You grow in conviction, otherwise you're double-minded. You're in, you're out, you're here, you're not. And, and you also grow in love, which is the most important. The greatest way to assess if a person is spiritually mature is the strength and depth of their relationships. It's love. If I do not love, I am I'm nothing. So it's truly in loving relationships that you see, see spiritual maturity, but it's also in the knowledge and it's in the will. It can't just be the will right? I'm gonna do it! Well, okay, you sound pretty engaged, but do you know what you're doing? No, never read the Bible in my life. You're gonna get into trouble. It can't just be knowledge, right? We got a lot of people walking around with a lot of Bible facts, but they're not very loving people. They're very stone cold in their heart, and they just want to tell everybody what they're doing is wrong. Ah! That's not spiritual maturity. So you have to have love primarily, but also knowledge and conviction. The mind, the heart, the will. We must make strong disciples in loving community. We strive in our church to make strong disciples in loving community in a lot of ways. We're actually, our vision for the next thousand days, we're striving to be a holy, healthy, humble spiritual community. Holy, that starts up our relationship and reverence to God. Healthy, how we form strong, deep relationships and humble. God gets all the glory. That's what we're building into this community. We have a lot of programs that we offer. Anchor Bible Institute, right? Pastor Bob's idea. We launched a Bible Institute Monday nights on break now where it's like seminary level, Bible college level knowledge. It's helping people to grow stronger in their knowledge. How many of you have come to ABI? Raise your hand if you've come to Anchor Bible Institute. All right, great. People are growing in knowledge. 
We offer kids ministry, Awana, Wednesday nights, that's on break. VBS over the summer is our kids ministry. We're going to do backyard Bible clubs and we can bring the gospel to your neighborhood if you tell us you will host one. We, we want to make disciples and then strengthen them in loving community. We also have many things we do when it comes to soul care, when it comes to the heart. Freedom groups. How many of you have gone through freedom groups before? You've learned heart theology, how to understand yourself and relate better to other people. This is how we make strong disciples in loving community. So we want to make strong disciples in loving community, just like they did. What does it say here? They preached the gospel, verse 21, then they went back through strengthening the souls. Strengthening the souls. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. So write this down. We must never quit on our way to the kingdom of God. This is more of like the heart, like encouraging one another to never give up. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, right? That's what we believe, continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So the word for encourage used in this text, encouraging them, is parakaleo, which ties into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. So through the church body, we are being encouraged by other people to stay in the faith. Why? Well, we have to encourage each other because it's going to be a long, hard journey before we fully and finally arrive in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a huge theme in Luke, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. So we are already members of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship, do you know what the Bible says? Our citizenship is in heaven, right? So we are already ambassadors on behalf of Christ. That is our home. We are already in the kingdom of God, but we are not yet fully and finally there. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we are already in it, but we are not yet fully there. That's what it means here when it says we're going to suffer many things on our way to the kingdom of God. So we must never quit on our way to the kingdom of God. The Bible is really honest that it's going to be a hard road. Now, when Jesus showed up and the angels sang of his birth and he lived the perfect life and he died on the cross, here's what should have happened. Everyone should have been like, he's here. The king of kings is here. The Messiah is here. And every nation should have rolled out the red carpet and said, come on in. You're the rightful ruler of our lives. You're the king of kings. You've done things no one has ever done before. You walked on water. You healed all the lame people. You're amazing. Come on in and be our Lord. Now, is this the way that the world responded to the coming of Jesus? No. They killed him, tortured him, spit in his face, hit him with a rod, threw him in a tomb. This would have been nice. It would have been nice, actually, if Jesus caved and took Satan's deal. i give you all the kingdoms of the world. You and I would have had a better life, kind of. Think about it. All the kingdoms of the world and no hard work or persecution or martyrdoms? Jesus said, no deal. That's why we don't get this. We don't get this. We get many tribulations here in this life. Oh, this is coming in heaven, right? We will be warmly welcomed into heaven. Not here. Not here. They are not going to roll out the red carpet. Get ready for rejection. Get ready for hardship. Get ready for ridicule. Get ready for people making fun of you and thinking that you're the problem. You're dangerous with these things, these old 
mythical things you're teaching people today. Are you still living in the dark ages? Do you have anything in that empty skull of yours? People don't believe that anymore. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? That's what's coming. We must never quit on our way to the kingdom of God. Never quit. Because we're not home yet. So many quit God, quit church, quit faith, quit the Bible when life doesn't go their way. I'm out! Maybe nobody warned them. Maybe someone did warn them. It's going to be hard. That's why we need encouragement. We need group life. We need to be surrounded by other spiritual friends. And I'd say this, if you're alone, if you don't have a church family, if you don't have spiritual friends around you, it's going to be very hard for you to press on in this world. It's going to be very hard. We see a picture here of the church gathering in community, strengthening one another, encouraging one another to continue in the faith because it's going to be hard. So number one, they preached the gospel and many were saved. Are you saved? Number two, they strengthened and encouraged the disciples. We must make strong disciples in loving community. We must never quit on our way to the kingdom. Number three, write this down, they appointed elders to lead the flock. They appointed elders to lead the flock. All right, so going on to verse 23, it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord, in whom they had believed. So they appointed elders in every church. Throughout the book of Acts, you see autonomous local churches being planted. So a church is a gathering of God's people who have been called out of sin and who gather together. Then local leadership elder leadership is installed then deacons come alongside to assist the elders in that leadership and then you have the ordinances of communion and baptism that is a church that's a church gathering a local church this was the pattern the model throughout the book of acts churches being planted local elder leadership being installed so they appointed elders to lead the flock we see here that church plants must have godly leaders installed where would these leaders come from? These churches were like two months old, right? How many of you have been through Awanas? Nobody? How many of you have done a John MacArthur Bible study? None of you? Uh, have any of you even heard about Jesus? No, I heard about him a month ago. Where did they find elders? Well, they were pulled from the Jewish ranks and from proselytes who became, who had an understanding of the scripture, right? So these people would have had a very solid foundation of their Old Testament knowledge. When they got saved, they were attending the synagogue where they had elders in every synagogue. Now they were Christians, but they were qualified to serve in the role of elder. Sure, there would have been people coming out of a polytheistic background who's, who were like three months ago, they were like, there's a million gods, and now they're like, okay, there's only one. Not going to serve as an elder at that point, but the time might come. So they appointed elders in every town to lead the flock. And being a church that is aspiring to be holy, healthy, and humble starts with elders that are holy, healthy, and humble. Then it spreads to the congregation. So we must appoint godly spiritual leaders, elders, to lead the flock. Write this down. Elders are empowered by the Spirit to lead the church. Elders are empowered by the Spirit to lead the church. They become like spiritual parents. Paul talks about his heart in 1 Thessalonians as being like a mother caring for his children, like a father exhorting them to grow up in the faith. That's the heart of an elder, like a spiritual parent taking, taking great care of 
children growing up in the faith. In Acts 20, 28, the same book, here's what Paul says. We'll put that up on the screen. To the elders, he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves, it starts with you, and to all the flock, he's talking to elders, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So notice it's God's church, right? It's not yours. It's not mine. It's God's church, which he obtained with his own blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see Trinitarian elements here. The Holy Spirit makes overseers of the church of Christ, which he obtained with his own blood. It is God's flock, and therefore we're taking care of what belongs to God. So the elders were installed by the apostles and elders in the New Testament. They were empowered and authorized by the Spirit of God to lead and teach. Pastor, elder, overseer is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is a manifestation of the Spirit's presence in our church to have elders serving in this role. So write this down. Elders are shepherds and overseers. Elders are shepherds and overseers. The three words, pastor, elder, overseer, are used interchangeably in the New Testament to talk about what an elder is. They just have different nuances. But elder, shepherd, pastor, overseer, same spiritual gift. Some elders have the office of elder. So at our church, uh, I'm an elder, and then we have Pastor Bob, who's an elder, and then we have Brian, who's an elder as well. Um, and But we also have Pastor Stephen, who is a pastor elder overseer who serves in that role, has that spiritual gift, but he doesn't have the office of elder. He's not like on the board. So some elders serve on the elder board, but there are others who are on staff. Some elders serve on the board and they're not on staff. So they serve a variety of functions, but it's the exact same spiritual gift. Elders are shepherds and overseers. The word elder offers wise and mature spiritual leadership. So the original word sounds like this. Presbyteros. Presbyteros. What does that sound like? Presbyterian. Presbyt right? So we draw words from church models and governance from these words. Elder. Every synagogue had them. So it's the Jewish form of this word. And they were esteemed and respected local leaders. Elders. Then there's the word pastor. The idea of being a pastor is one who cares for the flock of God. Through teaching, feeding the flock, the word of God, and through shepherding. Here's a picture of a shepherd, and this shepherd, we'll put up, up on screen, this shepherd's got a flock, got to take care of them, get them where they're going, make sure they're fed, make sure they're protected from danger. Here's another picture, and this shepherd is leading the flock through harsh conditions. So whether you're leading in good times or bad times, you ultimately, as an elder, are a shepherd of the flock of God. A shepherd, that idea draws from the rich Old Testament tradition of God being called the shepherd of Israel and God's flock being cared for by a variety of leaders. Sometimes the leaders were commended. David was a man after God's own heart. He shepherded the people of Israel. Um, but then there are others called out in the Old Testament who devoured the flock. And they were terrible shepherds. God promises to raise up shepherds for his people. So this idea of being a pastor and being a shepherd has great history throughout the Bible. And then overseer, elder, pastor, overseer. Overseer is more of a Greek word, so it's used in the surrounding towns in the Roman Empire. It means governing the activities of a city, kind of like a local mayor. So you are watching over the affairs of the church. And um, 
Episcope is the word there, episcope, another word that sounds like a church word, like Episcopalian, sounds like that. So you can see these words became models of governance. But being an administrator or a city official, someone who's planning or developing the city, <clears throat> promoting law and order through policy, this is what an overseer did back then. So you take the word elder, wise, respected leader, pastor, caring, teaching, overseer, watching over, you put them all together, that's what an elder is supposed to do and be. They were appointed in every town and every church. Elders are shepherds and overseers. And then write this down. The church is called to honor elders highly in love. Honor elders highly in love. So Paul and Barnabas come to town and they work wonders. Whoa! They just told a demon to beat it and the demon left. Paul's amazing. Well, and then Paul puts Charlie in charge and then leaves. And Charlie's like, I'm in charge. Who put you in charge? Can you do a wonder? You know, I mean, the apostles handing off authority to local leaders is a pretty wonderful thing to see. Because Paul could have been like, none of you get out of line until I come back and I'm the boss around here and I'm going to send you letters telling you exactly what to do because I work wonders. Uh-uh. Paul knew that the Spirit was raising up leaders. He delegated his authority. Then le these leaders were left to take spiritual care of this church. This is the way churches were built up. So the church, therefore, is called to honor elders highly in love because the Holy Spirit made them elders, and therefore the Bible calls us to submit to elders and to support their leadership. It warns us against grumbling or complaining or being contentious under their watch. And therefore, if a church is to grow up to be healthy and strong, we must install godly leaders and we must also insist on godly respect for those leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, written by the Apostle Paul, in one of his early epistles, he says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to, get this, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. This is how the church was built up and established and founded. They appointed elders to lead the flock. So we have, number one, they preached the gospel. Many were saved. Are you saved? Number two, they strengthened and encouraged the disciples. We have to make strong disciples in loving community. Number three, they appointed elders to lead the flock. We have to install mature godly leaders, and we have to honor them highly in love. Then number four, they glorified God for his great work. They glorified God for his great work. So it says in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So I love that. They went back, elders, prayer, fasting, committed to the Lord Jesus, who they believed, then they went on to the next city. Church planted, church planted, church planted. Verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. 
They glorified God for his great work. So God gets all the glory. I like how they return back to the church that sent them to give the praise report. Now, they both, Paul and Barnabas, steered clear of their, home, of their hometowns. Paul could have gone a little further. In fact, let's put that map up there again. Can you grab that map? Let's put that map up there again of the missionary journey. You see it at Derby right there, Tarsus, you see it to the right? Paul could have gone home, right? <laughs> I'm done with this. <laughs> Went back through death. And then Cyprus is where Barnabas is from. They skipped that. They got back to Antioch to tell the story. That's kind of a cool note that I read in the commentary this week. They went back through dangerous regions. And then they went back to the home church. We remember that the Holy Spirit originally said, set apart Barnabas and Paul for the work I have for them to complete. This was initiated by God himself. Then the trip was directed by God. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and the power to do miracles, signs, healings. They also taught the word of God. Paul didn't show up with his opinions on how the Roman Empire could grow in virtue and dignity, right? It was the word of God they were proclaiming, and therefore, God is the one who opened the door, and faith in Jesus is what led to salvation. Wouldn't you love to be there in Antioch when they got back, telling about the work that they had fulfilled that God had done, where they were commended to the grace of God? Wouldn't you love to have been there for this first missionary report, right? Like they get up there and they're like, okay, we're going to share a story of our first trip. Well, what happened? Well, we met a sorcerer. Ooh, People thought we were gods in one city. I died. Practically, God brought me back to life. It was crazy. But listen to all that God had done. There's joy when we realize God does it through us, but God does do it. When it comes to the missionary journeys of Paul, we have to realize that we are being challenged to go and make disciples of all nations. Let's go. Do you know they estimate through all of Paul's missionary journeys, he will have traveled over 10,000 miles, most of it on foot. Nine years he will invest, and that doesn't even include his early years, and he'll plant that we know of over 14 churches. And those churches then will go on to plant churches as well. Do you see the pattern here? We must go, convinced that the gospel is true, and tell everyone. There will be a mixed reaction, but many will get saved. They will become part of the worshiping community of Jesus Christ. They will have spiritual leaders. They will then go and tell everyone. And then through it all, God gets the glory. We must go as a church, as individuals, and make disciples of all nations. And we can have the confidence that heaven is helping us. People are responding. The power of God is flowing through the word, the spirit, and those who proclaim the truth. We can be bold witnesses despite the opposition we face. We must go and make disciples. And I love the confidence that we can have here. It says, it's the grace of God that began the work. It says, God did the work through them, and ultimately God had opened a door of faith so that all this work can be done. I want to close in prayer right now and ask God to open a great door of faith as we go to make disciples, here, there, and everywhere. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, what 
a spectacular passage we've been following here. The first missionary journey is complete. And through it, you have given us tremendous confidence that the gospel is true. We should believe it and go and tell everyone. We will face stiff opposition, but many will get saved and will need to be grown up in the faith, encouraged, developed. I pray that that would happen here. Oh Lord, we pray that it would be through the grace of God that we are commissioned to do your work. We pray that it would be by your spirit that we are built up in love. We pray that souls would be saved forever, even today. And right now, I pray for anyone who's online or in person who realized today that they just have never had any joy in Jesus. Maybe they had some knowledge of him, but certainly he was not the one who saved their souls forever from hell. Maybe right now, maybe today, they can say, Jesus, rescue me forever. Be my Savior. Wash away my sins. Promise me heaven. I want to be your disciple. Maybe right now, Lord, people will surrender their souls to Christ forever. Help us as a church to never, ever lose our passion for lost souls or for the sweet sound of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would also help us to be built up in the faith. Once we're saved, we need to press on and to grow up into salvation. So help us to encourage each other that we might become strong in faith. Lord, we will give you all the glory, but we pray that you would open a door wide for effective work to be done in our region. We pray for Chicago, our dark city. Oh Lord, full of corruption and violence. Use us, send us, transform lives forever. And may it be by your grace and for your glory that it all happens. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.